Welcome to the live stream portion of what we do here during our fellowship gatherings for Household of the Faith in Christ. Uh, you can uh, follow us along online, learn more about us online at householdoffaithinchrist.com. Today we're going to be in Revelation chapter 20, so I'd encourage you to get your Bibles ready so you can study along if, if you are so inclined. Revelation chapter 20, we'll be looking at the last part of the chapter, chapter uh, 20, verses 11 through 15, a message today that is titled, Death Does Not End All. And again, if you're watching the stream either live or later and you'd uh, like to see all the other or listen to all the other parts of this sermon series, the easiest way to access that is through our website, householdoffaithinchrist.com. So in Revelation chapter 20, we have seen a continuation of symbolism that is on hyperdrive. Right? We've read about a key, a chain, a hand, a dragon, actions such as Throwing and binding and shutting or locking and sealing were provided with a fourfold identification of the prisoner, dragon, serpent, devil, Satan. And these names for the adversary, by the way, give us an indication of how tightly tied this part of the vision is to the portion that is revealed to us back in chapter 12 with the same names there used for the enemy. This chapter's heightened imagery and the imaginative descriptions for John's vision have presented challenges to the church over the years, insofar as coming to a firm consensus as to what it is exactly is going on here. What is the meaning of it all? For instance, some will ask, must the millennium occur prior to Christ's second coming? Many, of course, they say yes, because this 20th chapter of the Revelation, it says that at the end of the thousand years, it is then that the dragon is set loose to deceive and wage war. And they point to the sequencing of events uh, and the battle language, as it's uh, described in the Revelation, and they conclude that the text clearly unveils one last war, not two or, or more, and so forth. And so they will also then ask, well, does it make sense to speak of protecting the nations from the devil's deception after they've not only been deceived, but also after they've already been destroyed by Christ, which happened in the previous chapter, in chapter 19. So these are, these are fair questions, reasonable comments, because the Apostle John, he has shared three rather interesting visions within the Revelation that complement one another. Two witnesses of chapter 11 the, women, the, the woman under attack by the dragon in chapter 12, and, and now here the shackling of Satan in chapter 20. These three uh, are all interrelated, interlocked in, in some regard, and they give every indication actually of, of being three windows on the same stage of the conflict, uh, affirming that God is active. He is active in hindering that evil old serpent. And in many ways, of course, God has always been active in this, See an example of this in the very life of Jesus, right? The Messiah, he demonstrates power over the strong man by performing exorcisms, casting out the enemy. That's an indicator that the kingdom of God is at hand. And thus the truth of the gospel shines forth. As the apostle Paul preached in Acts chapter 17, therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now commanding men that everyone everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he determined, having furnished 
proof to all by raising him from the dead. So you see, the cross of Christ, it is the hinge. It is the hinge around which all of history pivots. And yes, the enemy still prowls for a short time, the text in Revelation tells us, but he doesn't have free reign. Not free to do anything he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. So the beasts of Egypt and Babylon and Persia and Syria and Greece and Rome and Magog even, and even today's secular globalists for that matter, they oft seem so strong, but God is ruler yet, as we sing in the rather famous hymn, This is My Father's World. And that is true even when it feels to us as though the Lord tarries. It is true even then. Because as it turns out, I was meditating on this idea, thinking about this idea, and in that moment, I was listening to some music in the background, and by God's providence, a song started entering my mind, because I'm usually not paying that close attention to what I'm listening to. It's like, well, this is interesting. It's a song by the Cranberries. You remember the Cranberries? They were a pretty big deal once upon a time. And this song was playing as I was preparing this portion of the sermon. (laughs) And during the chorus, the lead singer of the Cranberries, she plaintively questions, do you have to let it linger? Do you have to? Do you have to? Do you have to let it linger? And it hit me, that's how we feel sometimes. Lord, do you have to let it linger? But we can rest assured God does not needlessly delay. The Apostle Peter encourages us in chapter 3 of his second epistle that the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but he is patient toward you. He's not slow, he's patient. And the Gospel writer Mark in his 13th chapter of his gospel, and the good Dr. Luke in several chapters, in chapters 12, 18, and 19 of his gospel account, both of these gospel authors, they remind us that even in the suffering, as it seems to us that God might be lingering, even then, the Lord hastens to bring relief to his people. So we should be encouraged and keep in mind that God is sovereign. He is always in control. And he is working even now in ways that sometimes we just refuse to see or are unable to see. So with that as our preamble, let's hasten to read today's passage without any further delay. The passage in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. It is the record of a vision that happens to share many features with Matthew chapter 25 and Daniel chapter 7, as well as several of the Psalms, particularly Psalm 7 and 47. So picking up with verse 11 reading through to the end of the chapter. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sits upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. Then I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then 
death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of God. It's part of the holy canon that is God-breathed. And because God breathed it, it doesn't have any error. It's infallible. It's inspired. So I encourage you to receive it as such and let it be the standard, the rule and guide for what it is you believe and how it is you live your life. I pray that those with ears would hear. So the throne in heaven makes another appearance to us here in these verses. And a whole bunch of uh, people who had died, they make an appearance as well. Now we've seen dead people earlier in the Revelation, including faithful saints who finished well. Now the victors, they are the martyrs, right? But not martyrs in the way we typically think about that word, not only in that way. The, the martyrs are not only the witnesses who were killed by persecution, but the martyrs, they are also the witnesses who have laid down their life in other ways. The witnesses who laid down uh, their life, they live a life instead for Christ rather than living a life for themselves. So we're all called to be martyrs in this sense. Now, those who turn away from following the beast... To instead, to instead follow the way, they, as martyrs, are qualified to share in the Lamb's rule. And there is a sense in which the bride of Christ already rules. There's a sense, even now, though not fully, of course, in the way that it will be at the very end. But right now, believers have souls that will live forever. That is true right now. Souls that will immediately be raised to eternal presence with Jesus when our physical death occurs, when our physical bodies perish. In the resurrection of physical bodies, that comes later. And these glorified bodies, they will be bodies that are incorruptible. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. And this occurs with the second advent. Right now we have entered into the season where we celebrate the first advent, the first coming of Christ. Well, there's another coming, a second coming, a second advent. And this glorified body is for Christ's followers, for his people. That's when that happens. All of our Savior's enemies at that time are forevermore crushed under the Savior's feet at that time as well. And the last of these enemies is, of course, death itself, the Scripture tells us. And so beautifully for the Christian. Death has lost its sting. Now, in one way, we might say that the Christian has already experienced a resurrection, right? Coming alive in regeneration, being born again, being raised to a, a, a newness of life. In another way, we might say that saints experience a resurrection when dying biologically, then going to be with the king in the spirit. However, one wants to think about these things, the biblical truth is that the body of Christ lives now. We have eternal life as followers of Christ now. Even while such things as death and mourning and pain still persist this side of heaven. The eternal truth is still the truth. So if you are truly trusting in Jesus Christ and only in Jesus, for your eternal shalom, then you have nothing to fear. In fact, you have everything to celebrate about the words that we read in today's passage. 
a passage that strikes many as a dark passage. But I say celebrate if you're a follower of Christ because we can and should rejoice in God's righteous justice. And we know that no one escapes the judgment of God. No one. It is universal. We also know, though, that if you are a saint filled with the Spirit of God, then amazingly, at the cross, the condemning judgment of God the Father that you deserve fell upon the incarnate Son of God instead of upon you. So you stand in judgment, but the punishment of that judgment doesn't fall on you. It falls on your Savior instead. Now, as for those who are outside of Christ whose number is like the sand of the seashores, it says, they don't belong to Christ, they belong to the dragon. It's the dragon who stands over them. This is symbolized in some regard, in my view, by the dragon that was pictured back in chapter 17. Do you remember? The dragon was standing on the sandy shore of the sea, the dragon standing over the sand of the seashore. Those outside of Christ, we're told, are they number like those that are the sand, number like the sand of the seashore. I think there's a connection there for what that's worth. If you reject Christ as Savior, well, this has you in a rather perilous predicament, (laughs) to say the least. Even if you're super wealthy, even if you're incredibly powerful, even if you are as wealthy and powerful as the harlot of the Revelation, that's a beast whose fate you share if you're outside of Christ. And sure, you'll be returned to a bodily resurrection too. (laughs) But only to be consigned to the fiery lake that never burns out. See, this is the flow of the argument, as it were, in this portion of the Revelation. There are basically three major themes going on here. One, the day of the Lord is coming. Do you hear me? The day of the Lord is coming. And with it, with the arrival of this coming, will be the resurrection of the dead. So the Lord's coming and there's a resurrection. And then the judgment. And then the judgment. Now, if we wanted to, we could spend a lot of time and really deeply dive into the weeds on all three of these points. Uh, But we're not going to do that right now. But I am going to allude to why. What what are all these weeds? Where could we get tangled in? Well, this is where people will teach about maybe there's two resurrections rather than one. And they point to this part of the Bible to try to make that case. Um, This is where people will pontificate if they believe in such things about the concept of soul sleep. This is where people will try to make convoluted arguments, in my estimation anyway, uh, trying desperately to get around the sixth chapter of John's gospel account vainly attempting to to alter what, in my view, are very clear statements by Jesus that God will raise up the believer on the last day. But we're just going to allude to those things now. We don't want to uh, get stuck diverting down any of those rabbit trails, at least not today. Instead, let's uh, transition now to directly examining some of the imagery and the lessons that are present in today's text. And we'll try to do so one verse at a time. So let's start with verse 11 where we're shown a white throne. And the white, the color, it symbolizes purity and victory and I would say possibly even vindication. And the whiteness, it connects, or I think at least it should connect our mind to the white hair and the gleaming white clothing of the ancient of days that's seen elsewhere in the Revelation and in the book of Daniel, for that matter. 
And this connection, it helps to highlight uh, the infinite wisdom of God's fully proper judgment. As we're talking about these things and making sure we're not missing some of the different applications, let's make sure that we don't allow the power, the simple power of this imagery to slip past you. We do not want that to happen. Don't gloss over the imagery here of the, 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 the purity of the holy justice that awaits the world. It's not just that God is pure, but his justice is purely righteous. God the Father is judge. Actually, God the Son is also judge. And the Father, he bestows upon the Son the, the, uh, the right, the responsibility, the, the character as judge. So let's not try placing the persons of the Trinity at odds with one another here, as so many are often want to do. There's a mean old bad God in the Old Testament. There's a good loving God in the New Testament. And the old God, he's the judging God. And the new God, he's the loving God who forgives everything without question. No, they're both. The Father and the Son are both the judge. The Father's perfect standard of justice, it must be met. And the incarnate Son, he agrees with him 100% and perfectly meets that standard indicating that the Father and the Son, they are completely on the same page. Jesus, he says in John chapter 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing from himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in the same manner. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. You see, if you... Don't honor the Father and the Son by the power of the Spirit. There is nowhere for you to hide. Nowhere. And this is partly because, well, wherever you think you might be able to go and hide, <laughs> it's busy hiding itself, right? All of heaven and earth fled away, it says. Fleeing. Because the entire creation is corrupted by the fall of man. There's a corruption. The entire creation groans as a result of our sin. And the sin, it can't withstand the presence of God's holiness, and so it flees. Now, in this fleeing phrase, I think that we might possibly see a hint at what will be more explicitly stated later with their uh, being a restored, recreated world. You know, right? The old world, it uh, it it. it Dissolves, disappears in a sense. The, the new one replaces it. There's the, what is, is is renewed in, in a brand new sort of a way. Again, this idea is fleshed out more vividly in the next chapter with uh, John seeing a new heaven and a new earth. And so we will talk more about that in the coming weeks. Now in verse 12 of Revelation chapter 20, we see that books are opened. And I believe it's possible this is my speculation, but I think it's possible that these books could, in part anyway, represent the books of the Bible. Again, that's just speculation on my part, of course. And even if I'm right to some extent, these books would still in some way represent more than just the Bible, right? And then one of the books here that's in view, it appears to be a very special book, it appears to be the book of the Lamb. 
uh, containing the names of each and every person who is elect. But in these other books, there's this idea of the books of the law, legal code that is cracked open like you would see maybe in a courtroom scene, which makes sense in a passage talking about judgment. We also see here books that record the sinful record of the unsaved. The life story of all of those who are lost, both the great and the small, we're told. And pay attention to something important here that's going on in this scene. Because one book is the book of life, right? It's a book that actually outside of Revelation, it appears in the New Testament only one place. That's it. That one place is Philippians chapter 4, verse 3. But in the Revelation, it shows up recurringly. It shows up in six verses. And this book of life, it's almost certainly the Lamb's book that's talked about in chapter 13. And so this is where I get to ask you a question. Put my pastor's hat firmly on my head and ask you the question, are you one of the Lord's faithful servants? Are you? Well, if so, then this book of life, the Lamb's book, that's the book that's relevant to you. It is the book of life. Because Jesus, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And he has written your name in his book. Now let's come at that question I asked a second ago. From Let's come at it from a different angle, from the flip side. Are you not one of the Lord's faithful servants? Is that true for you? If so, then the first books that are opened here in today's passage, these are the books that are relevant to you. These books contain the record of what you have done. The record that determines what you've got coming. I wonder, are there any sins in that record of yours? Well, the Bible teaches the wages of sin are death. Death is what you've earned. It's only by the grace of Yahweh that anyone can be rescued from their everlasting death sentence. And we can glean insight into who is thusly saved. How? By the fruit that they exhibit in their life. What is the evidence that's seen in their life? You know, it's been said that good fruit is known by its tenderness. You ever heard that idea? You can tell if the fruit is good or not by how tender the fruit is. Well, are you known by your tenderness to God's word? Is your heart soft to his leading and instruction? How tender are you towards God and his word and his truth? And we're about to transition from verses 12, uh, from verse 12 to verse 13. But before we do that, let's look at something that we find in both of the verses 12 and 13. Uh, as I've mentioned in recent weeks, uh, chapter 20 of Revelation, um, I, I like to change up the Bible translations that I use, and I tend to pick a translation for a particular chapter at a time. And so for chapter 20, I'm using the Legacy Standard Bible. And in the LSB, you hopefully noted when I read the passage today that verses 12 and 13, they, they, uh, they both end with, the dead were judged according to their deeds. Now, most translations, uh, they actually say this, or they might say something very close to this, they'll say according to their works. But some translations, they see something like, according to what they had done. Now, 
This is a very, very small difference, obviously, between works and deeds and what they have done. But this third translation, it helps us, I think, to better get at the point that is really being made here. Now, the Greek word that's in play is the Greek word erga. It's the plural form of ergon. Perhaps you've heard that word before. Maybe you recognize it as a root word. It's the root to the word where we get the English ergonomics. Have you heard about that? The, uh, the science of equipment design. And what is the science of ergonomics? If you get an ergonomically friendly chair, what is that ergonomically friendly chair supposed to do? It's supposed to help to maximize your productivity in the workplace. It's supposed to help you with the things that you do. So erga, it means works or deeds, the things that we do. And while John, he has written the word here in Revelation 20 using the plural form, the idea from this vision is that all of their works and deeds are what is in view and brought into consideration. And it's all of these works and deeds among the lost that brings their condemnation. In other words, there's a holistic view of the guilty person's life. All of their life is a life of guilt and they're judged according to their works, their deeds, the whole of their life that's recorded in the books because all that they have done, all, that they have done is filled with sin. It's all corrupted by sin. Because outside of God's saving mercy and grace, even their so-called righteousness is nothing more than filthy rags. As it says in Isaiah chapter 64. So now with the addition of this background, we can notice a kind of similarity with how we are to judge the testimony of someone who professes Christ, right? We know those who profess Christ by their fruit, the wholeness of their life. Well, Scripture teaches that we are to do this. You hear people say, judge not lest you be judged. We are to be judges. We are to take stock. We are to be discerning, to recognize are the people around us who they claim to be or not. And we can make these judgments based on the whole of their life. So I get, I get to ask another pastoral question. Somebody looks at the whole of your life would they say it's defined by, described by a life that's filled with fruit that is tender to the leading of God's word? Now on to the beginning of verse 13, which opens with a wild image of the dead being given up by the sea. Now in one sense, we've talked about this before, the sea throughout the Bible and also in Revelation, it oftentimes it pictures chaos. The sea is a picture of chaos that's present in our world. And we know that the entire planet is in varying degrees of chaos. Just look out your window. You'll see chaos all around you. Just watch the news. Check out your social media feeds. And so the sea, it represents the universality of those who are being raised because there's chaos everywhere. So we're talking about here all the dead. Even those who have been long forgotten, those who were lost at sea, who died at sea, were buried at sea, they're not left out, they're not forgotten. Everyone is raised. And we know this is true because very next phrase we read, death and Hades gave up their dead too. So this is building upon that previous phrase. It's making it clear for us that what's being talked about here is that all the dead everywhere are raised. And Hades is... Of course, famous is the name of the ancient Greek so-called God, 
of the underworld. And it's a word that became synonymous with the uh, netherworld haunt of departed spirits, spooky kind of stuff, right? Lots of medieval art based on this sort of thing. It's often regarded as a place of punishment, but over time it morphed into a rather somewhat generic common name for the grave. And this is how it's used in the Revelation. Common word for the grave. It appears four times in the Revelation in chapters 1 and 6, and then twice here in chapter 20, by the way. And it's always paired with death, interestingly. It's always death in Hades. And it's always speaking of the place of burial in, in a general sense. It's talking about a grave. It's talking about a tomb. So I'm emphasizing this because it is not to be conflated with the lake of fire. Hades is not the lake of fire. They are not one and the same. We can see this clearly from verse 14 in today's text, which says death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And death, by being thrown into the fire, death by burning, that's, that's pretty gross to us. I mean, think about it. If you really pause to think about it, and you imagine the stench of burning flesh and the screams of agony. Just the horror of the whole scene. It's a pretty horrible kind of thing. But it wasn't a completely outside the pale kind of a punishment back in ancient times. I mean, think about the story of the fiery furnace, right? The uh, three friends of Daniel, they were sentenced to death by an earthly king. And how were they to die? Threw them into a fiery furnace. Of course, they didn't die. Spoiler alert. You can read that story in the Bible. And unfortunately... Similar sentences to execution by burning alive, they're, uh, they're not unheard of in church history. Much to the church's shame, actually. There are a great many stories of men and women both deemed to be heretics, and so they were burned at the stake by the powers that be. Christians killing Christians, burning them alive. As horrible as they were, though, these were temporal punishments which, interesting, were exacted by people who are now dead themselves. <laughs> the lake of fire, though, it's different, right? That's judgment from the very hand of God. And his fire and his brimstone, that brings with it the idea of suffering and desolation that is not temporal. It is everlasting. But God's fire, it's also a positive signal, symbol positive for those who love him. Throughout the scripture, such as in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, for instance, and also in 1 Peter chapter 1, God tells us that as his people, we are fire tested. We are refined, revealing the quality of our work. And our loving shepherd, he brings us through the fire. As it says in Zechariah, rather, chapter 13, verse 9, God tells his people that he will bring them through the fire and refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. And God continues, they will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people. And they will say, Yahweh is my God. This is what's true for those who are born again. Those who are born again do not face the second death. The second death is 
described here in the lake of fire. That's the, that's, that's the death of all who have entered into a covenant of death. With the powers of hell. This is the death of atheism. The death of agnosticism. It's, this is the death of deism, polytheism, Unitarianism. It's the death of all of that. It's a, it's, it's a death, ironically, of the death cult. That's so pervasive in the world today. It's dominating civilization in recent years. That death cult, it will die in the lake of fire. In the lake of fire, we find the death of death itself. Now, with all I've said so far, let's not misunderstand. Let me reiterate. Because I know that hellfire and brimstone kind of messages can get people a little bit whacked out, and they look at you a little askance. Listen, it's not just the revelation. The language of the full Bible is the language of universal judgment. It is universal. Everyone, Christian and non-Christian, must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Everyone, no one's left out. All of us will stand there. All of us. Including me, including you. And when we think about this, our imaginations, they can run wild, right? We, they run away with us, our imagination, and we start to think about what's this going to be like? And I think too many of us, that we, we think that this day of the Lord, it's, it's going to be like, uh, I don't know, there's members of the church, even, even members of the church, not just those outside the church, but even members of the church. Because outside the church, they don't believe any of this is true anyway. So those inside the church are the ones that think, this is true. What's it going to be like? And even me as a member of the church, I'm going to have to stand there. I'm going to have to have my whole life like flashed up on a big screen, a jumbotron like in Times Square in New York or something. And every person who ever lived on the planet is going to be standing there being witness, watching the terrible things that we've done. We've all done terrible things. They're the secret things we don't want to share with anybody. We don't even want to think about them ourselves. And the whole world is going to watch. We cringe at the shame of being exposed in such a way. Oh my gosh, is that what it's going to be like? No. <laughs> it's not going to be like that. Now those outside of Christ, they will be given an accounting of their lives. It says so in today's text, right? The books are opened. Boom. But even they... Even those outside of Christ, even they will think very little, if at all, about fearing some sort of random thoughts by any supposedly watching world who's standing by to take in the horror show that is their life. And that's actually the entire point here, to be honest. The world is not their judge. They won't care what the world thinks. Their creator is their judge. And when caught in the penetrating gaze of his eyes like fire, <laughs> and then forevermore cast into the lake of fire, there will be no room in their unrighteous, unholy, tiny little brains for any thoughts about anything at all except about God's true righteousness and his perfect holiness. That will be the only thought on their mind. And those in Christ... Happily, we will face none of this. Instead, those in Christ, we will see how Christ has won the day. 
and how Christ has won us in the process of him winning the day. And so even if we should somehow conceptually, hypothetically, uh, think even a little bit about our past sins as we're standing there facing judgment, even if, as we're beholding the glory of God, we should have a scant moment of thinking about our sins, even if this will do nothing but remind us all the more of how great our God is. That will be the focus of our thinking. How great he is. How great his love for us is. How he has rescued us from that sin. Amen. Hallelujah. That's what it will be like. We won't cower in fear and shame. We will magnify the glory of our Lord. When we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, it will be a glorious experience for the Christian. He has saved us from our sin. And so we will not melt in the fire. Heck, if we melt at all, it will be us melting into the arms of the Lord. We won't be embarrassed by having all that we've ever done exposed to ridicule. There is no high-definition plasma LED screen somewhere up there in heaven showcasing all of our failings. It's not going to be about that. It's not going to be about us. It's not about you. It's not about your record. It's about Christ and his record. That's what it's about. There's a lot more that could be said about these sorts of things and other tangential issues that come up with Revelation chapter 20. As I've mentioned in the past, this is probably the most controversial chapter in the entire Bible. Literal fistfights, I think, have broken out over this chapter in the church over the years. And because of this, countless trees have been felled as people write their endless reams of books to grapple with what it is John is saying on this tiny little parchment that he wrote. <laughs> but in the context of a sermon series, we don't really have time to delve into every little tiny particular. But I imagine you might still be curious and you'll endeavor to do your own study. So I'd encourage you as you do your own study on these matters, remember this always. I would encourage you to study. And as you study, always remember to find ways in which the word of God is knit together. Don't get hung up on a single word, a single phrase, a single sentence, a single verse, a single paragraph, even the single book of the Revelation. You want to look at the whole Bible knit together as one cohesive whole. You want to use scripture to interpret scripture. And what we're learning in the Revelation from start to finish, we want to look at the whole book in its context, what it teaches, it's showing us Things that are also learned throughout the whole of the Bible. In, uh, in Genesis, in Isaiah, the Psalms, Zephaniah. Pick your favorite book of the Bible. The four Gospels. The epistles of the New Testament. The entire canon of Scripture. And that message, that central message. Yes, there are a variety of human authors involved, but there is one ultimate author. There's a deified author. God himself is the author. And his message in his Bible that he has given us and preserved all these years, it boils down really to kind of what is written at the end of Revelation chapter 20, where verse 15, it says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, the Lamb's book, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Is your name written in the Lamb's book? Or are you going to be thrown in the lake of fire? Is it evil is judged. 
even as sinners are saved. It's amazing, isn't it? Evil is judged as sinners are saved. God is so good. And so his saints, they will not face the second death, and so therefore they do not need to fear the first death. That is happy news. And it's all possible because somewhere around 2,000 years ago, the Son of God entered his creation as the incarnate Jesus Christ of Nazareth so he could live the perfect life that we fail to live and die the perfect life that we cannot offer ourselves to rescue us. It's all possible because of what we celebrate and recognize during this time of the year in the church calendar, the Christmas season. We're going to close today with a poem that's called Death Be Not Proud. I'm not sure if you've heard it before or not, written by John Donne. Uh, it's about victory over death. And it says, Death, be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkest thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death. Nor yet canst thou kill me. From rest and sleep, which but thy pictures be, much pleasure. Then from thee much more must flow, and soonest our best men with thee do go, rest of their bones and souls' delivery. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men, and dust with poison, war, and sickness dwell. And poppy and charms can make us sleep as well, and better than thy stroke. Why swellest thou then? One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you are so good to us. We praise you and we we thank you that you, from before the foundations of this world, had a plan set in place, a plan to rescue your people by sending your son to sacrifice on our behalf. We know that we deserve the punishment of our sin. We deserve death. And we know for those that are trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ that he has paid that penalty that we deserve on our behalf. Thank you to live. Thank you for the lives that we are allowed to live as we, we seek to grow in our sanctification. Help us to, to do so evermore, to become increasingly obedient, to demonstrating to you and to whatever watching world there might be around us, but mostly help our hearts to desire to demonstrate to you how much we love you by demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Thank you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, that's going to be the end of the stream. I'm going to shut this down. If you want to find us online, again, that's householdoffaithinchrist.com, householdoffaithinchrist.com. Till next time, God bless.